Well, thank you, Brian and Angela, for leading us in song this morning. And before we jump into the sermon, I just want to say a brief pastoral word to you. Um, this is weird, okay? Um, this is a strange time in which we are living, um, a time in which we're not able to gather together as a church family, a time in which uh, businesses, restaurants, things are shutting down, slowing pace. Um, this is a strange time. Uh, I've, I've thought about that over the course of these last several days. Um, I never thought I would see a day like today in my lifetime, but here we are. And one of my prayers has been throughout uh, this strange season is that for us and that for many within our community, uh, that until we're able to gather again, that through this process that God would be awakening and birthing a desire within us to no longer take for granted the opportunity to gather with each other. Uh, this is not the way that God intended it to be. Uh, we're, we read in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 where uh, the author of Hebrews says that we ought not neglect the gathering of ourselves, the assembling of ourselves together. I don't think this is what he had in mind of me standing in someone's living room uh, delivering a message to a camera feed and you sitting in your living room watching on a computer screen. Um, so I hope that while this absence of the ability to gather, uh, we want to encourage you through that time, but this absence would create an awaken, a hunger for the gathering together with God's people. So that for maybe for those of us who treated that um, with less than the importance that it ought to be, that God would use this time to remind you just how deeply you need to be with God's people. It's hard to sing in our living rooms, uh, not singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. And it's hard just to process this sermon individually and not being gathered with God's people. Uh, but, but in the midst of this time, we do want to continue as long as we're able to come to you to encourage you and to bless you. Uh, so last, this week, we're going to jump back into the Gospel of Mark. If you did not see last week's message, the, pre-recorded, or the recorded message that we sent out on the Vimeo channel, I encourage you to look there. Last week, I encouraged us uh, to take refuge in the Lord, to know that He is our strong refuge, a strong source of shelter for us, that there's nothing that can ultimately harm us as we, if we're fleeing to Him, if we're running to Him, if we're seeking shelter under Him. And so if, you, if that's where you are this morning and that's the word that you need, I want to encourage you to go back after this and listen to that message if you have not yet already done so. But we want to continue working our way through Mark's gospel. And where we find ourselves today is in Mark chapter 6, picking up in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 6 together. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures in front of you, I encourage you to turn there with me now. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus, we find this story recorded about Jesus. It says in verse 1, He went away from there and came to His hometown. And His disciples followed Him. And on the Sabbath He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard Him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to Him? How are such mighty works done by His hands? Is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. 
and he could do no mighty work there, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief and went about among the villages teaching. Now, we came through Mark 4 and 5 several weeks back, and in Mark chapter 4, we saw that Jesus is on the boat with his disciples, and this great storm emerges and erupts over the sea, and they call out to Jesus in fear, and Jesus awakens, and in the word of his voice, all the natural forces of chaos are stilled. And then you fast forward into Mark chapter 5, and you see Jesus arriving on the shore on the other side, and when he arrives, he meets a man who is possessed by a legion of demons. And at a word, a command of Jesus, those demons are expelled as He exercises power and authority over the spiritual forces. And then the very next story in Mark chapter 5, you see Jesus, power going out from Him to heal a woman who had been plagued by a disease for 12 years of her life. And in, in, as He takes the time to seek her out, find her, and minister to her, the one who had come seeking his help for the sake of his daughter who was dying at home, she ultimately passes. But when Jesus arrives, he takes her by the hand with compassion and he calls her forth back to life. He resurrects her so that even Jesus has even power over death. So over natural forces, over spiritual forces, and over the greatest enemy of, of us as human beings, death. And so in Mark chapter 5 and chapter 4 and 5, you see Jesus doing all kinds of mighty deeds. And yet when he comes to his own people, to his own hometown, to his own relatives, what you see is something very different. What What we discover here in this text is this, is that ultimately Jesus' family, his friends, those who had grown up with him, those who had played with him as a young child, those who had been educated alongside of him, they, continue, they just find themselves to be stumbling over Jesus. And what this teaches us is this, is that Jesus is indeed the stumbling block. And what I mean by that is this, that Jesus has been, he is now, and forever will be the dividing line between Christianity and every other system of thought, every other system of belief, in the entire world. Now listen, the word offense here in the text is a Greek word from which we get our word scandal or to scandalize. It literally meant to place, literally meant to place a stumbling block in someone's past, something that they're going to trip over or fall upon. And so for Jesus' family, for his hometown friends, it was scandalous for those individuals to believe on him. They were scandalized by him. And listen, I want, to, I want you to know something, that, that scandal, that offense has continued to unfold through from century to century and generation to generation, and it continues even today. And there are several reasons why Jesus continues to be the stumbling block in our day and time. Let me give you three of them. There's probably broad categories and all kinds of specifics, but let me give you three of them. First of all, first of all Jesus continues to be a stumbling block for some people because it's too easy. He's too easy, right? It diminishes my glory. It offends my pride. I mean, all I have to do is believe on Jesus to repent and turn from running and ruling my own life and to place my faith and my trust in Him. Sounds too easy. There's no noble work accomplished by me. There's no great deed of valor that I've achieved. It sounds too simple. But listen, in Romans chapter 9, 
beginning in verse 30, the Apostle Paul, writing about the, God, the grace of God coming to the Gentiles and seeing them having a righteousness of, that's not their own, as he's talked about earlier in the book of Romans, but it's ultimately by faith in Christ. He says this, he says, What shall we say then in Romans 9.30? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But, the, here, but listen, here's the key. But as if it were based on works. He says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. As if it depended on or was based on their works. In other words, they pursued the law thinking that they could keep the law, they could achieve the law, that ultimately God would be in their debt and He would owe them righteousness, He would owe them grace, He would owe them His mercy. And so if they could achieve something really great and grand that would bring them glory and inflate their pride, then they would have arrived and be acceptable to God. And yet, Paul says that they didn't pursue it by faith, by trust, by throwing themselves on the mercy of God, but rather than thinking to themselves, I can achieve God's mercy by my merit, by what I do and achieve and accomplish. Listen, there's a great story that I think illustrates this point beautifully in 2 Kings chapter 5. And, like, and I think today there are many people who are like Naaman who are offended whenever they are told to go wash in the river. Listen, in 2 Kings chapter 5, we find the story of Naaman. He was a commander of the Syrian army. And the Syrians were doing raids in Israel constantly. And that one of those raids, they, they, they captured and, and drew aside a young servant girl who ultimately became a servant in the household of Naaman, became a servant to Naaman's wife. Now, though Naaman was a great man, we're told in the text in 2 Kings, he was a mighty man of valor. Right? So he had achieved all these noble deeds. He had led troops into war. He had led numerous successful campaigns, and yet he was a leper. And this young servant girl said to Naaman's wife, she said, I, I, I wish that Naaman could get to Samaria. He could get to the prophet of God. He could get to Elisha because Elisha could heal him. So Naaman's wife goes and reports this to Naaman, and Naaman goes to the king of Syria and says, King, if I could just get to Israel, there's supposedly there's a prophet there who could heal me. And so the king commissions him, sends him with a letter and all sorts of gold and silver and fine robes. And so Naaman shows up to the important place in Israel. He shows up to the palace. He shows up before the king, and he petitions the king to give him healing. And the king says, I can't bring healing to you. In fact, he's a little bit offended that, that, that Naaman would come and ask him for that. And yet when Elisha gets word that someone had arrived with a commission from the king of Syria to the king of Israel, Elisha said, send him to me so that he would know there is a prophet in Israel. And so whenever Naaman arrives at Elisha's home, Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him. Now think of this, an important man, a commander of the armies, a great man of valor, and here he shows up on the prophet of God's doorstep, and the prophet won't even come out himself, but he sends a messenger. And the messenger comes out and says to Naaman, hey, look, your, money no, your money's no good here, okay? But what you need to do is you need to go out and you need to wash in the river 
the, the river seven times. Seven times, dip yourself and come up and dip yourself and come up and dip yourself over and over again seven times and you'll be clean. And Naaman, Naaman is offended because he says, here, here I am. What first, the prophet wanted me to come out to see me, wanted me to come out to meet me. And second of all, listen, there are rivers back in Damascus that I could have dipped myself in there and be made clean. Aren't those waters better than these dingy waters here in Israel? And yet the servant that came along with Naaman finally persuades Naaman to come and to dip himself in the waters. And Naaman dips himself seven times. And after the seventh time, he is made clean. The leprosy is gone. And Naaman comes back to Elisha and says, listen, what can I give you? How much can I pay you? And Elisha says, once again, your money is no good here. In other words, Naaman, it's not by might. It's not by power that you're going to achieve this cleanness that you need. But rather it's by trusting in the word of the Lord and being obedient to his prophet. Listen, church, there are many for whom who are like Naaman, they're offended because it seems so simple. It seems so easy because there's another fountain in which we are called to wash. That's the fountain of the blood of Christ that would cleanse us from all of our sin and make us clean. And yet for some it's too easy because they haven't achieved greatness. They haven't achieved greatness. They haven't brought them glory. They haven't made their pride swell up. And so they stumble over Jesus because it's too easy. For others, it may be too hard, too difficult for them. Listen, Isaiah chapter 8, we read these verses in verses 13 and 14, but they're set in a context where Israel has turned away to worship and serve other gods. And the Lord's promised to raise up the Assyrian army to come in and overrun them in judgment. And he's, God's going to judge them through Assyria, but He tells His people through His prophet before this takes place, He says in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 and 14, but the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. In other words, you are to have a holy fear of God, not of the Assyrians as they come in to overrun you. And then in verse 14, he says, He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In other words, they'll stumble over God in the midst of this judgment that is falling upon them because they've turned away to worship and serve the idols of the other nations. And so God says, if you want to worship and serve their gods, I'm going to let them come in and overrun you. You see, what, I think what we learn from that is this, is that it's, it's too hard for some people. They stumble over Jesus because it's too hard, because they don't want to give up their false gods. They want to give up their deepest desires, the things that bring them in this life, the things that they think are going to bring them the deepest satisfaction or the greatest comfort. And listen, there is no other time, church, in which I think the Lord might use what is going on around us to draw many to repentance because they've been seeking refuge, perhaps, perhaps in their finances. They've been seeking refuge in their family or they've been seeking shelter from something or someone other than the Lord Himself. And perhaps through this time, God would use what is going on around us in the natural order, in the economic order, on the political landscape to call people to lay down their little G gods and to have a holy reverence toward the Lord Himself. 
And yet for some, Jesus will continue to be a rock of stumbling because they refuse to lay down their other gods. And then finally, not only is it too easy, not only is it too hard, but for some it's too shameful. I mean, listen, if God were to come, if God were to come, He he would come in power, not in weakness, right? I mean, that's what we think in our natural state, in our natural minds, apart from grace. Listen, it is shameful to identify with weakness. We want power. We want glory. We want honor. So why identify with a crucified God? Peter speaks of something similar to this in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, as he speaks of how God is working to gather for Himself a people to build a spiritual house into a holy priesthood that would offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for those who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You see, what we we learn here, one of the things that we learn here is this, that with God in His economy, those who are humbled or exalted and those who exalt themselves eventually will be humbled, humbled because God's economy is absolutely counterintuitive. And what looks like honor in our culture is actually shame. And what looks like shame in our culture oftentimes is actually honor in God's eyes. There's a great illustration of this in C.S. Lewis, the final novel in his uh, Chronicles of Narnia series, The Last Battle. And there's a a, scene that he describes in which um, one of the characters, Tyrion, is in the midst of a great battle and he, he and his forces see a small stable up on a hillside and they see that as to be their only place of refuge and shelter and so they run to it. And Whenever they enter this stable that appears to be very, very small on the outside, here's what they find. It says Tyrion had thought or would have thought if he had time to think at all that they were inside a little thatched stable about 12 feet long, 6 feet wide. But in reality, they stood on grass. The deep blue sky was overhead. The air, which blew gently on their faces, was that of a day in early summer. Not too far away from them rose a grove of trees, thickly leaved, but under every leaf there peeped out the gold or faint yellow or purple or glowing red of fruits, such as no one had seen in our world. The fruit made Tyrion feel that it must be autumn, But there was something in the feel of the air that told him it could be no later than June. They moved to the trees. Everyone raised his hand to pick the fruit he liked the look of best. And then everyone paused for a second. This fruit was so beautiful that each felt, it can't be meant for me. Surely we're not allowed to pluck it. It's all right, said Peter. I know what we're all thinking, but I'm sure, quite sure we needn't think it. I have a feeling we've got to the country where everything is allowed. What was the fruit like? Unfortunately, no one can describe a taste. All I can say is that compared with those fruits, the freshest grapefruit you've ever eaten was dull. And the juiciest orange was dry. And the most melting pear was hard and woody. The sweetest wild strawberry was sour. And there were no seeds or stones and no wasps. If you had eaten that fruit, all the nicest things in this world would taste like medicines after it. But, but I can't describe it. 
You can't find out what it is like unless you can get to that country and taste it for yourself. Now listen, as Tyrion explores this fascinating country for himself, he sees a small, rough, wooden door, and around it was the framework of a doorway with no walls, no roof. There was nothing else in sight. And as he walked around the door, he stood amazed by how the door just stood there in place. And when he peeked through the crack between the wooden planks, he saw the darkness of the outside world and the battle still raging. And then, Lewis says, he looked round again and could hardly believe his eyes. There was blue sky overhead and grassy country spreading as far as he could see in every direction. And his new friends all round him laughing. It seems then, said Tyrion, smiling himself, that the stable scene from within and the stable scene from without are two very different places. Yes, said Lord Didgery, its inside is bigger than its outside. Listen, church, I want you to know that outside, outside a crucified king appears to be shameful. And so people stumble over him because they want to be identified with success and power and accolades and accomplishments. But listen, I want to tell you something that what appears to be shameful on the outside inside is honorable. As you see the suffering servant laying his life down for you from the inside, what appears to be honorable Okay, what appears to be honorable, great noble acts and mighty deeds and prideful accomplishments is actually to our shame, whereas humility and laying our lives down is actually honorable. So see, there's some who will continue to stumble over Jesus because they're looking at him from the outside and not from the inside. And because of that, it's too shameful. So maybe that's too easy, maybe that it's too hard, and maybe that it's too shameful. But I want you to know something, that life in Christ is bigger, fuller, and more free than it appears on the outside. And so rather than stumbling over Jesus, I want to call us to build our lives on Him by doing two things from this text. As we think about what do we do with this, the first one is this. I want to encourage you to embrace the wisdom of Jesus. Now listen, those in Jesus' hometown, they certainly recognized the wisdom Jesus possessed, but they didn't embrace it. They didn't build their lives on it. I want you to look at the questions that people ask in verse 2. They say, where did this man get these things? Right? What is this wisdom that is given to him? This ordinary guy who was the son of a carpenter. And we're not even sure if he was the son of a carpenter, but we know he was the son of this young lady who had a questionable reputation within our community. Right? So how is it that he has this insight? How is it that he has this wisdom? How is it that he perceives these things and teaches these insightful principles and uses these phenomenal illustrations? See, they recognized the wisdom that he had, but they didn't embrace it. And they didn't build on it. Let me encourage you, church. If you're going to not stumble over Jesus, but build your life upon him, him be the cornerstone of your life. And you need to learn to build your life on Jesus by embracing the wisdom of Jesus. You must, and if you're going to do that, there's two things. You must believe that it works, first of all. In other words, you must believe that the teaching of Jesus is both useful and practical in your life. Listen, you and I, we only follow people we believe to be competent to lead us, especially when it comes to experts in any given field. Listen, 
If you want to learn to fish, you don't ask somebody who's never caught a fish to take you out on their boat and teach you how to fish. Okay? You take somebody who appears to be able to catch fish to teach you how to fish. Right? The same is true. If you're thinking about trying to lose, shed a few pounds and you don't hire a trainer who's several hundred pounds overweight and slamming snicker bars every time they show up to your training sessions. Listen, you should never hire me to tutor your child in math. I will, just, I will mess them up royally when it comes to trying to learn equations beyond 1 plus 1 or 2 minus 1. Listen, that, that is not a good idea because I'm not competent to lead them. Listen, you never entrust yourself to someone you don't believe competent to teach you or to instruct you. And so if you're going to come to Jesus, embrace His wisdom, not just recognize that He's got some insightful things to say and kind of give a head nod, but actually build your life on it. That was the problem there in Nazareth. They refused to build their lives on it. If you're going to build your life on it, you've got to recognize that it works. Dallas Willard, I've read this quote to you before. I'll read it to you again. He says this, he says, Our commitment to Jesus can stand on no other foundation than the recognition that He is the one who knows the truth about our lives and our universe. It is not possible to trust Jesus or anyone else in matters where we do not believe them to be competent. We cannot pray for His help and rely on His collaboration in dealing with real-life matters that we suspect might defeat His knowledge or abilities. Listen, you're not going to lean on Jesus and lean into Jesus right now. In the midst of all that's going on around you, if you don't believe that He's more competent than you, if you don't believe that He knows more than the leaders of our nation, if you don't believe that He has more power and authority than the greatest medications that they can derive, Willard goes on and says, "And Can we seriously imagine that Jesus could be Lord if He were not smart? If He were divine, would He be dumb or uninformed? Once you stop to think about it, how could he be what we take him to be in all of the respects and not be the best informed and most intelligent of all, the smartest person who ever lived? Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate before saying Jesus is smart. He's not just nice, he is brilliant. He always has the best information on everything and certainly also on the things that matter most in human life. Now listen, church. If you're going to believe, if you're going to embrace Jesus' wisdom, you've got to believe that He works. You've got to believe that He has the best information on all things. Right? That He knows everything there is to know about everything. But the main thing that keeps us from believing that the wisdom of Jesus works and embracing it and building our lives upon it is that this underlying belief that, that our desires are superior to God's design. In other words, what we want is more satisfying, it's more fulfilling, it's better than what He wills. Let me give you a couple of examples. Listen, speak to the kids who are out there on couches right now with your parents. Listen, kids, you know the Scriptures teach us to honor our mother and father. In fact, the Apostle Paul repeats that in Ephesians as he says to obey your mother and father. That's the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you. Right? We've heard that before. If you're raised in a home where your parents are instructing you in the Scriptures. If you've been in our church, you've heard us teach on that. You've heard sermons on it, lessons on it. We know that, and we go, yes, we need to affirm that. But let me ask you this question. Do you embrace it, and do you build your life on it? So that whenever your mom, mother, or father say something, they issue a command, an edict, an order. 
they dispense wisdom to you? Do you embrace that? Do you come under that? Do you find that to be satisfying in your life? Or are you pushing back against it because of what you want in that moment? Listen, adults, we're not very different, unfortunately. All right, just case in point, we all know that it's not wise, right? We, we all know that it's not wise uh, to run up massive levels of consumer debt because, so that we can be generous and so that we can be free and not be a slave to the lender. And yet, many in America live under that burden and entangled and bound by consumer debt. Because what we want oftentimes often wins out over what we know. Because before, listen, just as much as we are thinking beings, we are feeling beings, and our desires oftentimes trump God's design. So listen, if you're going to embrace the wisdom of Jesus, you have to believe that it works. You have to believe that it's superior to what you want. But second of all, listen, you've got to be captivated by its wonder. You must believe that it not only is practical and useful, but it's beautiful. And here's what I mean by this. Listen, the, the wisdom of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the principles that Jesus lays out, the insights that He delivers, listen, they are no Photoshop kind of beauty, okay? Everything's kind of nipped, tucked, adjusted, tweaked, the lighting, the shading, okay? Everything is kind of colored over to paint us in the best light possible. It is not a Photoshop beauty kind of life. But listen, it's a real authentic beauty that's developed in your life as you embrace His wisdom. I want you to consider the Sermon on the Mount with me. Back in Matthew chapter 5, you see Jesus say over and over again, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. And when He says that, what He's doing is He's pushing His audience and us beyond the letter of the law to the heart and the intent of the law. And listen, church, I want you to know there is a magnificent beauty inherent in God's design. Magnificent beauty. Listen, consider a few things. There's beauty in the life of a person. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, just thinking of some of Jesus' teaching, some of His wisdom. There's beauty in the life of a person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. So that righteousness is deeper than just mere surface behavioral modification. Right? There's actually new desires that are being birthed in them as they want new things. And they live and do new things. Now, there's beauty in the life of a person whose righteous deeds are not put on dis- to display to show off how good they are, but to show off how good God is and has been to them. There's a beauty that's radiated by a, a life that's not just morally restrained, but it's supernaturally changed. There's deep beauty in the eyes, and you know this because you've seen it, in the eyes of a husband and a wife who for 50 years, now in their 80s, have loved each other well. They've seen and stayed through all kinds of seasons of life. There's deep beauty in a person who lays down earthly treasures and wealth to lay up treasures in heaven and is radically generous. There's deep beauty in that kind of life. Listen, don't you want that kind of beauty to be radiated from your life? I think we all do. But there's only one path to it. It's embracing the wisdom of Jesus and being captivated by its wonder because you believe that it actually works. So you wouldn't stumble over Him, but you'd build on Him. But listen, if you're going to build on Him, not only must you embrace His wisdom, but finally, you've got to believe in His power. Listen, I find it pretty amazing in the text that the thing that astonishes Jesus here is the unbelief of the people, that He marvels at their unbelief. Okay, now listen, I, I, let me just be clear. 
and, and say something for a moment. Uh, while, while exceptional faith, okay, exceptional faith, faith bigger than a mustard seed, let's say it that way, faith bigger than a mustard seed, listen, it doesn't always equal exceptional outpourings of God's power, at least not in the ways that we might envision it. Sometimes exceptional faith might equal an exceptional outpouring of God's power that we might persevere in the midst of very difficult circumstances, including the ones that we may find ourselves in today. Right? Isolated, finding ourselves cut off from the outside world, perhaps some of us struggling with illness, feeling lonely, apart from social contact. Listen, God is able to give an outpouring of power in this moment that will allow you to persevere if you would believe that He's able to. Right? But the outpouring, exceptional outpouring of God's power may not always look like we think that it should look. And it may not always result in this happy living after fairy tale ending here in this world. It will one day, but not always in this world. Right, so let me be clear. Exceptional faith doesn't always look like exceptional results defined by us. But it would seem from our text that a lack of faith restricts the outpouring of God's power. In fact, we see in the text that the cold, unbelieving hearts of the people in Jesus' hometown, His family, His friends, those who knew Him best, it restricts Him from doing mighty work there. You know, the mighty work that he had been doing, like stilling storms. The mighty work that he had been doing, like casting out legions of demons. The mighty work that he had been doing, like raising a young girl from the dead. That mighty work that we just read about, those kinds of deeds, Jesus was not able to do in Nazareth because the people did not believe that he was powerful enough to do them. They saw him to be ordinary and commonplace, just like them. Now listen, I mean, imagine with me for a moment. Jesus shows up in your hometown. He heals a few people. If Jesus showed up in our hometown and healed a few people, like a revival breaking out all over the place, right? But listen, he, he could not do those things that he had been doing. It's, and it seems it's the reason we're told in the text is because of the unbelief of the people. Let me ask you a question. What else could Jesus have done there? Just think for a moment with me. What else might have Jesus done? And if we would believe in His power today, what else might He do in our lives? If we were to really believe that Jesus is able to heal any hurt, restore any brokenness, renew anything that has been worn down in your life, He's able to take all the things that have been distressed and broken and shattered and worn down, and He's able to renew, heal, and restore them. What if we actually believe that, church? What if we actually believe that He could renew any strained marriage? Right now, as some of you are in homes with your spouse, not out at work, you're finding it difficult, perhaps, because you've had space that you no longer have I want you to know something. Believe in the power of Jesus that He's able to heal even that strained relationship as you're forced back together and maybe God would use this in your life at this time to bring restoration of that relationship. He's able to heal, restore anything. Listen, what would you believe in the power of Jesus for in your life right now? Right now, today, 
in this season. See, I'm not aware of a time in my lifetime anyways that calls upon us to trust in the power of Jesus more so than the one that we are living through right now. And listen, let me just call you to do that. And as you do, you'll be building your life on Him, not stumbling over Him. To believe in His power, embrace His wisdom. Listen, it is not too easy. It is not too hard. And it is not too shameful. Because on the inside, it's much bigger and bolder and freer and fuller than you might perceive it to be on the outside. So come in. Embrace His wisdom. Believe in His power. And see what He might do in your life. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for technology. We're grateful for this gift. But Father, may we never believe that it replaces the gathering of ourselves, the assembling of ourselves together. It it feels weird and it should today. And so Father, I pray that that strangeness would never subside for us until we're able to gather again. And I pray that you would use that strangeness to awaken in the hearts and lives of some an embracing of the wisdom the wisdom that you deliver to us in your word, and that whenever we're able to regather and celebrate all that you have done and perhaps grieve some of what we have lost, that there will be people who have treated the Sunday morning gathering with a degree of ordinariness and a degree perhaps of even contempt, that they would come swelling, swarming back into not only our church, but churches across our nation and world. But in the meantime, Father, may you use this vehicle to encourage others. Father, I pray that during this season that your church will continue to remind the world that the inside is bigger than the outside and invite them to come in to life in Christ, to believe upon Jesus, this one who was crucified for them, that they might know what real relationship with a real God is like. And Father, I pray that they would see us embracing the wisdom of Jesus, that we would, we would know that it works, and that we would be captivated by its wonder. And I pray they would see us believing in the power of Jesus to do things in our lives today and tomorrow that are unfathomable. That we would truly believe that you're able to do more than we could ask or imagine. That we would truly believe that you're able to heal, restore, and renew anything in our life. So the Father, that our unbelief would not restrict mighty deeds from being done in our midst as they were in Jesus' hometown. Father, I pray that we would see the forces of the natural order stilled. I pray, Father, that we would see the forces of, of chaos in the spiritual realms stilled. And Father, I pray that for many, on the other side of death's door, they would know the power of resurrection. They would know the power of life as it breaks forth into their life today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I hope this encouraged you today. 
If for any reason you may know someone who had struggles connecting to the live stream, I just want you to know it'll be posted later today on Vimeo. They can go access it like they would any other uh, sermon that we've recorded over the last year and find all that content there. Or if you want to send it to someone, share it with someone, encourage you to do so. And until we're able to gather again, church, or until we come back to you through this venue, my prayer for you is the prayer of the benediction in Numbers chapter 6, that the Lord, that the Lord would be gracious to you, the Lord would keep you, He would cause His face to shine upon you, and He would give you peace. May you go in His grace and peace. We love you.